Happy Monday. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm Tara, and this is God Talk with Tara, um, the podcast that the Lord has been nudging me to begin. Uh, I suppose I probably need to begin with saying that each time. It just seems very um, pretentious. <laughs> oh, that's okay, though. Um, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. And we are going to begin as we always begin. Uh, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. I pray that you would join me. Father God, I pray your spirit would be here tonight. I pray that you would fill this space that I am sitting in, that you would reach through the wires and the internet and the microphone, Father God, and travel down the lines and through the air to the people who are hearing this, wherever they may be and whenever that might be. I pray your spirit would be there with them. I pray that he would give them ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand whatever it is that you are speaking to them tonight, Father God. I pray that you would reach into their darkness and their loneliness and their tiredness, Father, that you would reach into their strength and their joy and that you would just be present in all of it, God, and that you would make sure they know it that they are aware of you, Father. I pray that you would draw them, Lord, and that you would teach them to seek you while you may be found. And that they would remember the promise that when they seek you with their whole heart, you will be found by them. Lord God, I pray tonight that you would make me small, that you would make me small and that you would magnify Jesus, that you would magnify your Holy Spirit, that you would magnify yourself, Lord God, I pray that you would give us a glimpse tonight of heaven. We thank you, Father, for all that you do. We thank you for your spirit, and we thank you for your son. In Jesus' name, amen. So every now and then, you read something, or you watch something, or you hear something that really kind of strikes you with an epiphany. Um, every now and then I will hear God in places that wasn't necessarily expecting, um, which is kind of strange because in this case, I heard God in something I was reading for my apologetics class. And you would think that in a Christian apologetics class, you would be expecting to hear God in the things that you read. And realistically speaking, there's so much that I have read that I really don't hear God in, um, that's not to say he's not present. Some of it is just mind-numbingly boring. Um, I have a textbook called The Philosophical Foundations of a Christian Worldview. Um, and the opening was very, you know, exciting, actually. I loved the introduction. I loved the first chapter, and then they got into logic, and that was a little entertaining. And then they got into epistemology, I think, is where I got bogged down. And realistically... Chapters two and three have, have kind of put me to sleep <laughs> as I'm trying to read them, uh, which is actually not normal for me. Uh, I, I usually enjoy reading and learning new things, um, but it is just, it's very, very wordy, which if, as you get to know me, you're going to, you're going to realize what a absolutely hysterical comment that is coming from me. Um, and so there's that one where I know that God is present. I know that there are things in there that you know, point to him that they're building a, a framework and a foundation for knowing God and learning 
um, and being able to use our minds well. And I think that that is beautiful. I think it's beautiful to help people build an integrated worldview and understanding because we are designed to be integrated selves. Um, so it's a great, it's a great purpose to the book, but I'm struggling with it. And it's not something where I'm finding epiphanies. Um, and then a lot of the other texts that I've been reading or videos that I've been watching, um, are so confrontational. The perspectives that they come from are very confrontational. Um, it's a winner take all death battle us against them. Um, and, and I get it, I understand it. Again, I'm not gonna criticize. There are aspects of that in scripture. You see that sometimes with Paul um, and, and even some of the other apostles, you see a very uh, firing combative approach to wickedness or evil or to those who would lead others astray. So I think there is a place for those kinds of, of combative um, apologetic practices and polemic practices. But at the same time, it's a little discouraging and disheartening. So, <laughs> And then I was reading, um, I, I've had an opportunity to read Confessions by St. Augustine, and there I, I have been seeing God, and that's been a beautiful thing. Um, Augustine's a little bit focused on, on the sins of his past, which honestly makes sense. Um, I think that as I finish reading this book, what I will find is that he has talked a lot about where he has come from in order to give hope to those who are still stuck there. And having a story probably a lot more checkered, actually. <laughs> Even growing up in Carthage and going to school there, I haven't gotten into in anything in his uh, in his telling so far that would lead me to believe his his past is worse than mine. Um, you know, so I can I can understand that, but it's still not been one of those moments where God says, "Look at this. You've never seen this before. Let me show you something new." And that is what I ran across last week as I was studying a, an article written by somebody named George Mavrodes. I'm hoping I'm not mangling his name beyond belief. Um, and the article is called Religion and the Queerness of Morality. Now, in today's, um, in today's context, the, the, the term queerness has probably got some of you guys twitching in your seats and wondering where I'm going with that. But this is an academic journal <laughs> and he wrote this some time ago where the term queer meant weird or odd. Um, and you know, in the dictionary, it still means weird or odd. So what he means by the title is that if you have a worldview that rejects God, it is a very strange thing that the actual world we live in has moral compulsions or obligations. It is a very strange thing. And yet at the same time, we do see that there is in the world a system of moral obligations. Um, he calls that rights and duties. We talk about that a lot in our country. And that was actually one of the reasons why I thought this was what I was talking about 
on Saturday night when I mentioned that I went in a different direction than I was expecting. Um, he talks about how the concepts of rights and duties are, you know, intrinsic in the societies we live in, in the world around us, that we feel as though there are such things as moral obligations and that they are givens. They're not something that is contingent or dependent upon us. Um, and after, he, I don't, I don't want to get into the arguments he was making um, as far as the atheistic worldview or materialist worldview. It was actually when he came to the end and he actually did something that so many apologists don't do. He made the case for Christianity. He explained what he had been talking about in the context of Christianity and what Christianity has to offer as we assess the facts of the world around us. And I just started crying because I'm reading this and I was like, wow. Because what he says is, I come more and more to think that morality, while a fact, is a twisted and distorted fact, or perhaps better, that it is a barely recognizable version of another fact, a version adapted to a twisted and distorted world. And he goes on to, to give some various things, um, explanations or examples of that. And then he says, I think it may be that the related notions of sacrifice and gift represent or come close to representing the fact that is the pattern of life whose distorted version we know here is morality. Imagine a situation, an economy, if you will, in which no one ever buys or trades for or seizes any good thing. But whatever good he enjoys is either one which he himself has created or else one which he receives as a free and unconditional gift. And as soon as he has tasted it and sees that it is good, he stands ready to give it away in his turn as soon as the opportunity arises. In such a place, if one were to speak either of his rights or his duties, his remark might be met with puzzled laughter as his hearers struggled to recall an ancient world in which those terms referred to something important. Now he goes on with that and, and makes the case a little bit more on some things, but that was the part that arrested me as I was, as I was reading. That was the part that brought tears to my eyes as I could see the truth of what he was saying and the beauty of what that will look like and how we have already seen the hints of that. We've already seen the example and the representation of that. So if we look at scripture, we can see where this idea that he presents here comes from. So in Isaiah, there are actually a couple of places. The first scripture that came to mind was the concept that in such a, a place, there wouldn't be any conflict. Because that's what he's describing, is that there would be no conflict. There would be no need for taking. There would be no need. Well, there would be no need because all the needs would be fulfilled. And so the first thing that came to my mind was the wolf will lay down with the lamb. Um, or 
the lion will lay down with the lamb was actually what was in my head, but that's not what the scripture itself says. So in Isaiah, we get this picture in chapter 11, verses six through nine. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So that was the first thing that came to mind as I was picturing this, what it would look like. What it would look like to be in this place where there was no strife and there was no fighting and everyone gave freely what they had and what they made. They made things with joy to share with other people. Um, what kind of an economy would that be? And I've heard of God's economy before and that never really clicked as a contrast not to our money changing hands the way we do, but the concept of the rights and duties. The concept that it isn't about duty and obligation and things that I have a right to as, as a result of fulfilling, that that's actually not, that's actually not a heavenly perspective on things. Right. I did mention I used to be into politics quite heavily. Um, I'm still into politics in many ways, but uh, there's a lot that's changed in my relationship there because I look at that through the scripture now, whereas before I used to look at scripture through that lens. And so in a conservative politics, right, um, rights and duties are a very, very important part of what we present to the world as a um, moral framework for society to function. We have our Bill of Rights and we have these, we hold these truths to be self-evident that everyone has the right to um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, and at the same time, you will more frequently than not hear conservatives also pounding on the idea that with rights come responsibilities, that there are obligations that we have toward one another when we live within a society. And so this is the society that I've always grown up in, right? And it is the way I have always perceived things. And I find it to be biblical, or at least I used to find it to be biblical. And I think that it is. So Matt Rhodes is not saying that morality in the here and now is not a valid thing that we need to adhere to. In fact, he is very much making the point um, in the rest of his essay that there is a moral obligation. There is a rights and obligation framework that we all function within, that those things go deeper than simple psychology and simple um, desire on our part or, or, you know, my perspective and my opinion on those things is that it is something much, much deeper than that. Um, but it's twisted. And that in this world, because this world is twisted, it is the thing that is in place to lead us onward until such time as this picture here in Isaiah comes about. So the other thing that that struck me in the Old Testament as I was reading was 
in Isaiah 55, today was very much an Isaiah day. Um, it says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Um, and I'm going to stop right there. He goes on to talk about how that's an invitation um, to come into the presence of God. And, and why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. There is that sense that it's not necessarily food and honey and milk that Isaiah is speaking of here. It is an invitation to come into the presence of the Lord and richly receive from him all that he has to give. Um, and then the last thing that came to me was that there is a, a prediction elsewhere of this coming. So as we look at the end of scripture, when we come from the Old Testament and Isaiah to the New Testament and Revelation, um, what we see is in Revelation 21 and 22, um, or verse 22, we see, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now it goes on in chapter 22 to talk about, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Um, so as we look at this picture of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that John paints in Revelation, we get again this sense that there will be no one who tries to take by force. There will be no need for that kind of behavior because everyone will have what they need. The river of life will th flow through the center of the city. The leaves of the tree of life will be there for the healing of the nations. All of the nations will bring their glory in to God and they will dwell in his presence and there will be fruit and there will be every need met here in the kingdom of God because God will be present. And there will be no space within that for those who don't give of themselves, who don't function in that gift and sacrifice perspective on the world, that gift and sacrifice economy where the goal of every person is to fulfill God's purposes for them, and in doing so, meet the needs of the people God has built them to meet the needs of and receive from those that God has built to give to them. So this is God's picture is, is God builds people and plans so that 
if we are operating in his image and in his kingdom and in the way that he works, our needs are met by those who he has given something to share and we meet the needs of others with things that we have been given to share, whether that's physically, financially, or spiritually, or gifts that we've given, talents that we have. The Lord connects us with other believers, puts us into the family of God, puts us into the body of Christ in a way that allows us to use what he has given us self-sacrificially to pour ourselves out for the building of the kingdom. And yet, even as we are poured out, he continuously pours in because that's God, because he can give abundantly beyond anything that we can ask or imagine, right? So God pours in continuously as we pour out continuously. And the needs of everyone are not just met, but they're exceeded because the whole of creation is vibrantly alive with the power of the Lord and the love of God in us. So this is the picture. And God says in that space, no detestable thing will ever be done. So one of the arguments with the whole moral thing there is that, you know, it's better for everybody if everybody is moral and therefore it's better for you if you're moral because, you know, you're part of the everybody. But that whole concept breaks down with the idea that some people are immoral because the reality is we know that to be true. And so in a rights and duties based place like we have here on earth, um, it becomes detrimental oftentimes to behave in a sacrificial manner, um, to behave well just for the sake of behaving well. Um, and so there will be more and more increasingly those who don't have another reason who don't follow God. More and more what you will see is people behaving what we would consider immorally because it makes no sense for them not to. Um, and what God says is that won't happen in heaven because the people who are in heaven will love him and they understand him as Lord and they are part of the people that he has drawn and transformed and shaped into being people like him <laughs> that are made in his image, that are self-sacrificial. And so that kind of brings me to, to the rest of the picture that God gave me with this. Because a lot of times, you know, we I was reading Mavrods and he says, imagine a world now like i don't really have to imagine a world because we've already seen this now we've seen what happens when we behave this way in a world that is still twisted and fallen and broken we've seen what happens when we behave this way in a world where rights and duties is still the economy that operates by and large in the rest of the world. And yet it is by the very nature of showing the example of what it is to operate in the kingdom of God, that salvation has come. So if we look at Jesus, what we see is Jesus standing in, 
in the feast, on the last day of the feast, and this is in John 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so what we see here is Jesus making the, the proclamation that he is the fulfillment of these things, that Jesus has come to demonstrate what it is to be operating in this economy of God's kingdom of gift and sacrifice. He came as a free gift to anyone who would take it of salvation and redemption and reconciliation with God on high, with the creator God of the universe who walked with his children in the beginning, right? He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He sat with them and spoke with them. He was teaching them. He was growing them. He spent time with them there in the garden until sin entered the world. And they chose a different path. They no longer sought knowledge from God, which came with wisdom. They suddenly had the knowledge of good and evil. And so they sought knowledge on their own. And it led them down dark paths. And it led them to this twisted fact of what we call morality, this rights and duties mentality, this in order to function with others in society. It led them to, not everybody follows that. Cain bashes his brother's head in and is banished because of this. And then Lamech, several generations later, takes two wives and threatens to kill anybody that slaps him upside the head. You, you have this, from the moment of the fall in Genesis, you have this escalating need for boundaries and this escalating twisting of God's kingdom and what he designed it to be. And then suddenly you have Jesus step into this. Now he's given the law to the Jews to kind of give them an understanding of how to function in this fallen world. He's given them laws. He's given them the Ten Commandments. He's told them how they are to treat one, each, one another. He, he's given them all of these rules that lay out their rights and obligations. And they still aren't following it because we live in a fallen world, right? Um, but they're at least paving the way for the, the idea that there is something more, that there's something different than the simple chaos and wickedness um, that is this covering the land in so many other places. And then finally, it's time. And Jesus steps into the earth to inaugurate the kingdom of God here on earth. And he does that in a great outpouring of giving and sacrifice. It isn't just that he went to the cross. It's also that he fed the 5,000. And when he fed the 5,000, it was 
Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. Jesus came feeding people physically and spiritually. He came speaking words that satisfied souls. He came and fed thousands of people without charging them anything. He healed people without asking for anything. He came and he gave. He came and he gifted people in his presence and in the things that he could do for them, in the words that he spoke, in the promises that he made and kept and fulfilled. Jesus came giving and gifting. And in his final, well, I shouldn't say that, in what we would consider his final act before we knew better, he sacrificed himself. God came to earth and poured himself out for the salvation and the reconciliation of creation to restore what had been twisted and broken in the fall to begin the process of renewing and remaking creation in the image of a giving and gifting and sacrificing economy where everyone pours themselves out for everyone else so that their joy will be complete because they will all be in Jesus as he is in the Father and the Father is in him. And as the Holy Spirit binds them all together, that is the image, that is the image that God gave us of what it looks like. And more than just that, what he did when Jesus came was made it accessible in the here and the now. So we live in a world where we are very adamant about our rights and our duties. And it doesn't really matter what country you live in, although that is a very big thing here in the United States. Um, and what God says is, yes, you have rights and duties here in this world, but I want you to go past that. I want you to go past that because it's not about obligation. It's about God loves a cheerful giver. It's about I need you to love me enough to love the people around you enough to love you enough to be willing to carry me inside you wherever you go and allow me to pour myself through you. And sometimes that's going to mean pouring yourself out. In fact, most of the time, it's going to mean pouring yourself out. And I will give you joy in that. That's what he tells us is he will give us joy in that because we're in his presence. He will give us joy in doing what he's made us to do. Even if from the outside, it looks like we should be exhausted and worn out and just completely. And people are taking advantage of us and this and that. We look at this from the perspective of the world. If we look at the work of Christ from the perspective of the world, he was so very, very put upon and persecuted and, and horrible, terrible things happened and how could he have been so foolish? Didn't he know he had rights? And what God says is that we are not citizens of this world. 
We are citizens already. While we walk here and now, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And in the kingdom of heaven, we pour ourselves out for the work of the kingdom, knowing that God will pour himself out into us and through us and over us. And that we will always have what we need. I don't know what that looks like because I know for a fact that there are people in this world who physically don't have what they need, who know God, who love God. There are people in this world that will end up dead because they have poured themselves out for the kingdom of heaven. They will be persecuted. They will be burned. They will be flogged. They will be shot. They will be having their heads chopped off. It happens every day around the world. That people pour themselves out for God and the end result is that they end up dead. And yet, that is the other thing that Jesus did. Because it wasn't his last act to die on the cross. He rose from the grave. And he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father to prepare a place for his people to come. And he promises that those who pour themselves out not only will find themselves filled with joy and power and authority and grace and mercy and love and peace here on earth. Because they already walk in the kingdom because they're carrying Jesus with them and the kingdom comes in and through them. But that when their work here is done, that they will shake off the twisted brokenness of their physical body here in this world. And that's not to say bodies are bad. Please don't hear that. That's an interesting thing, but a whole different sermon. It's not to say bodies are bad. But we live in a world that is based in a twisted and fallen image that is in the process of being made new, but it's not made new yet. And so we are still subject to that twisting and it didn't erase all of the good that God did, but it did make it so that it is not perfect the way it will be. And so God tells us that he will give us all we need, that he will bring healing to these frail and messed up bodies, that he will give us our hope and our love and our light, and he will draw us. And when we're done, he will bring us home. We are already where Jesus is because he is in us. But there will be a day where we are where he went because we will be in heaven and no longer here. Paul talks about that in Philippians, that if I am here, it is a good thing. And if I am die, it's a, it's a better thing because then I'm with Jesus. The fact of the matter is, is for a Christian to pour yourself out and even to be persecuted and even to be killed for those things, that is not the end of the story. It's not the last act. Jesus calls us onward and he promises us that we're already in this economy, that he gives us this glimpse of in Revelation and he gives us this glimpse of in Isaiah. We're already in the most important ways, in the economy, where the lion will lay down with the lamb, or the leopard will lay down with the young goat. Uh, we're already in the economy of God's gifts and sacrifice. It is up to us to live that out in the world so that they can see what that looks like. 
That's how God's kingdom comes. I pray that you will all be blessed and I pray that the Lord will show you the ways in which he is trying to redeem your lives, whatever those may be. And I pray that he will show you the ways that he desires to transform you into the places where you can walk constantly in his joy. That he will show you where to pour out so that he can pour in more and more and more. I pray that you would have a blessed night. Father, please be with those listening. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.